Welcome back to the Woman Without Kids podcast. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and this series has been created from research interviews that I conducted for my forthcoming book of the same title, which will be out with Sounds True in March 2023. In this episode, you'll hear me in conversation with the feminist organizer and author, Jenny Brown. In her 2019 book, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, Brown claims that women in the United States are staging a reproduction slowdown, a baby boycott in response to bad conditions, determining that the burdens are unfairly piled on us as women. We're deciding to have fewer children or none at all. And well, her meticulously researched argument makes a very good case for this, as did what the COVID childcare crisis would go on to reveal about how far there still is to go when it comes to recognizing that child rearing is an unpaid full-time job in and of itself, one that our economy is in fact built on. Jenny's work was instrumental in helping me gather my thoughts on what ultimately feels like a lapsed societal duty of care when it comes to mothers and fathers being properly supported in their parenting, as well as to the children who are being raised by caregivers whose resources are often stretched to the limit. Notepads at the ready for this one. There is so much packed into this brilliant interview that I know you will find as illuminating and infuriating at times as I did. This is Jenny Brown. Jenny, thanks so much for your time today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, So I'm always really fascinated, especially um, when I find a book that feels so timely and so prescient as Birth Strike, as to what was the inception point for this project. You know, starting writing a book is a is no small undertaking. And yet, speaking for myself as an author, there's always been a point where this is the next project. It sort of drops in. And I'm wondering what that moment was for you, or even if it was a moment, if it was more of a steady build over time, or whether there was something that happened either in your personal life or in the news that made you realize this is this is my next body of work um, and I'm committing to this. Well, I was involved um, from 2003 to 2013 in a campaign to get the morning after pill over the counter in the United States. And in the process of that campaign, we discovered that the U.S. politics around abortion and birth control had really um, gone backwards. And in fact, we we were really surprised when the Obama administration didn't, uh, you know, the FDA finally, after all of our pressure, um, uh, recommended making the morning after pill, which is after sex contraception, um, over the counter for all ages. And the Obama administration blocked it. We had been fighting the Bush administration, which was Republican Republicans, and we didn't expect anything from them. But we really expected the Democrats to be more friendly to it. And it really showed us that the... Um, uh, the struggle around birth control had had um, was returning in a way that it it had not really been an issue for really since the early seventies. So um, when we started that campaign, I was working with the Red Stockings Women's Liberation Archives. Uh, Red Stockings is a group that was founded in nineteen sixty nine and was responsible for a lot of the good ideas that that became the women's liberation movement. Um, 
And we launched a project to look at why birth control was now on the chopping block again. And we originally thought it would be a pamphlet or um, a, a short article, but um, eventually it became this book because there are so many aspects to it. You know, we looked at the history of birth control restrictions in the U.S., and then we looked at the dropping U.S. birth rate, um, the reactions of the establishment to that. Um, we looked at the situation in other countries, and then we looked also at our own experience at um, having and raising children or deciding not to. Um, so all of that ended up, you know, ended up being plenty of material for for a book length treatment. Um, and that's so that's how it came about. And so what came out of that was, I suppose, this very clear picture that restricted access to birth control and to abortion and even um, restricting kind of feeling rules about around motherhood and really pu pu pushing women into motherhood as their most sort of important and vital role on a sort of social level are all actually a part of a sort of pronatalist policy, which is about making sure we keep producing lots of babies to keep the system kind of operating as it has been operating. Is that sort of what it boils down to or is yeah. it more complex than and, that? And I, th I, think for the, I think for the women's liberation movement, which arose at a time when the birth rate was quite high in the United States, we were in the middle of a long post-war baby boom, much longer than other countries. So for the women's liberation movement, when we won, uh, for example, the right to abortion in 1973, um, and and a lot of birth control laws were falling in the late 60s, and and by 72 it was legal for unmarried people to get uh, birth control around uh, across the United States. So those those two struggles were at the same time. There was big panic in the establishment over overpopulation, the increasing birth rate, the the cities were crowded, the schools were bursting, there was all this crime. You know, they all complained that that was because of the of the long baby boom and the high birth rate. So we didn't, I think, really grasp that that was an aberration. That was a very unusual um, moment. Um, the whole history of birth control and abortion restrictions up until that point in the U.S. had been around how can we get people to have more kids? And this was a very brief period in that post-war uh, from around 55 to around 75 when the establishment had, had the opposite agenda. And then they went right back by 1980, they were right back to worrying about uh, the birth rate dropping, which, um, but because the movement arose at that period when the the establishment was talking uh, talking about overpopulation, it it became very confusing. And I think um, I think what we tried to do in this book is get back to that long sweep of history and show how that that period from the fifties to the seventies was was actually unusual and. But an interesting moment because we were able to win a fairly good abortion law, obviously not not as good as other countries had. And we certainly didn't have guaranteed right to abortion because we don't have a national health system. But um, but we were able to win that in that context of uh, panic about overpopulation. And then, um, you know, when we wonder why we're being pushed back, part of the reason is that that that's no longer the agenda. The agenda now is 
is a pronatalist agenda mm. to get people to have more more kids. Mm. However, however that can be done, mm. despite the fact that globally overpopulation is an issue, and this sort of is where, in a way, I was you know the title birth strike is very. Um, very powerful. And I've got a quote, I'll read that in a sec. I, I have a specific question about that. But since it's, it's sort of come up now, um, there is an environmentalist birth strike movement who are, you know, very proactively saying we need to have less children for environmental reasons. To what extent does your work and does the research that you've been doing or that you did that went into this book kind of dovetail? Were you aware of the birth strike movement when you when you wrote Birth Strike, is there a connection between you or um, is it sort of a separate agenda? It's a separate agenda. And I really wasn't aware of them until after the book came out. Um, uh, my understanding is that that they started in the UK. And um, my my impression was that that and I think this has been borne out by some of the materials that they've produced lately that they were focused on drawing attention to the climate crisis and pressuring governments to do more, essentially by saying, this is such a crisis that I'm, I, I'm not willing to have kids. Um, and they recently changed their name to, um, to something that, that I think is a little bit closer to what they were getting at, which is called grieving parenthood in the climate crisis. Mm. Um, and I think they changed because, as they themselves recognize, when you say climate birth strike, it does make it seem like the basic problem is that there are too many people. Um, our our position in in the U.S. Uh, feminist movement is that that is that the problem is the fossil fuel industry, not that there are too many people. Um, you know, corporations have spent. 40 years knowing the problem and hiding it and attacking the science and generally obstructing changes in our power systems. Um, if we had uh, started when, when we knew that there was a problem, we, we would be a lot closer to, to a solution. Um, and the other thing that's going on is the population is actual of world population is actually leveling off already faster than expected. Um, so I think, I think, I think for us, the enemy in the climate struggle is not parents or even individual consumption, but how we get and use our energy. So, you know, during the uh, during the pandemic, we have a great chance to downsize the airline industry. Uh, a lot of the fossil fuel companies were were going bankrupt. They could have been just bought up for a song. Um, they were going bankrupt anyway. But instead, we published pumped public money into these uh, into these companies, which are is destroying our our ability to live on the planet. So and I, I think uh, for people who want to do something about that, it's not really uh, effective to blame other people for having kids or not have kids yourself or any of those things. It's really, really uh, taking political action on, on those fronts. Um, is is the immediate thing and it needs to be done fast. It's not something that's going to change from a demographic change. Right. Yeah. It's such a good point that we have to really look at the systemic issues that are, again, being masked when we, oh, well, with the attention is being diverted from what actually needs to happen. And those really kind of like macro level versus us worrying 
like about how, how our individual actions are necessarily impacting or causing or taking the blame even for, for what is actually a, a larger systemic issue. And so then tell me about, oh, go ahead. And I should say, I mean, in the book, we're not calling for a birth strain. Mm. We, we're, we're saying that there, there is one spontaneously. And the problem is that parents and mothers and people who want kids but aren't having them are all blaming themselves for the problem so that they can't figure out how to make it work. Um, and if we understood that it was a systemic problem, we could make some demands to fix those issues. Um, we were, I think the the climate birth strike movement did at some point seem to be calling for people to not have kids. And that that is something that we we never did. We we always uh, um, just made the point that the that our our birth rate is going down because conditions are too difficult. And if people want to have kids and can't, that's also a failing of our economy. Right. Yes, exactly. And so, like you say, the the birth strike that you're talking about is more of um, it's not it's not an organized birth strike. It's more of um, just a an not necessarily involuntary, but unconscious sometimes sort of reaction to just the conditions, the general conditions, particularly as they pertain to mothers, children, caregiving in general in the society as it stands. So, yeah, can you tell me a bit more about how you came on that on that term, like why you landed on the term birth strike? Well, it starts out, the, the first references are in France in the late 19th century, and then in the U.S., the first place that you find it being used is um, really to mean uh, availability of birth control. So um, we have Emma Goldman, who is the famous anarchist lecturer, who who would go around and give what she called her birth strike lecture, which was about um, about women being able to control their reproduction, essentially, or having having the ability to strike right mm-hmm. um, on on the question of of having children, and um, so. So we thought that that was a a powerful way of talking about it, and it made the, that connection to that struggle for birth control mm. um, uh, historically. Um, but again, we we are describing a phenomenon that 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 is sort of you know thought of as oh that's just demography or that's just statistics, you know the fact that fewer people are ha- having kids, um, you know it's just a fact of nature. And we see it as a, a, a collection of individual decisions around a system that's really not the economy is really not working to allow us to have the families that we want. And this was this um, became clear when we did consciousness raising among ourselves in in my group. And so the two groups that were involved in this are National Women's Liberation and the Red Stockings uh, group that I mentioned earlier. Um, so we did consciousness raising around our decisions to have kids, our decisions not to have kids. Um, and uh, we included a, a section in the book, a chapter mm. of, of testimonies. Um, it was very clear that, uh, and surprising to us because we hadn't really compared our experiences, even though we knew each other well and we knew each other's situations, we didn't really see how many of us had stopped at one child and just could not figure out how to make it work to have a second. Um, and then there were quite a few people who had 
wanted to have kids and never could figure out how to make it work or were in the process of trying to figure that out and and had not successfully figured it out. So just work economically, healthcare, childcare, how will I have time off from my job? Can we afford it? Um, how will we have enough time in the day? All of those, all of those factors, um, you know, will my partner do his share? That kind of all those things were being were being weighed. And and in many cases, when you had one child, all those answers were were kind of like, yeah, it's pretty, it's gonna be pretty hard. And so um several of us have wanted a second child and and not and not been able to do that. And so when we saw that, we said, okay, clearly this is this is not a faceless demographic fact. It's a lot of decisions, very painful decisions that people are making, um, trying to juggle their lives. And, and there are obvious policy things that we can do to make things better. Right, exactly. And when I when I said, you know, this Berg strike is almost unconscious, I suppose what I was getting at, and this is very much what I'm, this consciousness raising is what I'm engaged in whilst writing my book, Women Without Kids, because as somebody who all, like always knew I didn't want to have kids, it was only when I really started to dive very deeply into the why that I realized that actually there had been all of these almost so almost unconscious, sort of almost imperceptible micro decisions that I'd made throughout my life, not just decisions, but micro um, realizations that I'd had about the world that we live in, what it means to be a woman, what it means to work, what it means to be supported, what it means to have family, what it means to care for and be cared for, that all added up to this very, what felt like an intrinsic knowing that I did not want to be a mother. And it really boils down to almost a sense of self-preservation. Like if I'm going to have a life that supports me and feels comfortable and supports the kind of experiences I want to have for myself, having a child is not compatible with that. Again, and lots of grief has come up for me in this process that I didn't even, that I wasn't even aware was there before because I'd just always been so sure undoubtedly because I have had opportunity, so many opportunities in my life. I've had the opportunity to go to university to pursue a career that I really love. You know, I, I met my husband when I was very young and I've had a very long-term stable relationship with him. So my life hasn't, nothing has really felt like it's missing in many ways. And so it's only been diving into and really kind of examining the underlying terrain of my experience of as a woman and as that pertains to my sort of reproductive potential that I've realized actually how much has not been available to me in that realm. And there is a lot of sadness around that actually that's coming up for me now. I'm really curious. Um, we see that even in countries that have much more robust pro-family policies, free childcare, free healthcare, extensive paid parental leave, et cetera, et cetera. Even in these countries, the birth rate is steadily and steeply in decline. So it's not just the economic factors? Or is it that perhaps there just isn't enough being done still, even in those countries where we see places having, you know, a year's paid parental leave? Is that even that not enough? What do you think is going on there? Well, there, so there are, there are wonderful examples in Europe where you can compare. Um, and it looks like France and Sweden sort of um, made the big investments uh, early on starting in the, well, Sweden starting in the 30s, but 
certainly in the post-war period and then in, again in the 90s, um, as a result of low birth rates, they wanted to get their birth rates up very consciously um, for good reasons and bad. I mean, in the 60s, you know, the French government wanted wanted a higher birth rate so that they could have a bigger army. You know, it was very explicit. Um, but uh, they made big investments in childcare and long paid leaves. And as a result, their birth rates did rise uh, uh, back up to sort of replacement level, which is in, uh, you know, in an advanced country would be about 2.1 children per woman. Um, but the countries that make it hard for women to work and have kids, and I think of, for example, Germany, where the school day ends at noon, or Japan, where mothers are expected to quit their jobs and experience terrible discrimination. I mean, in the U.S., uh, up until the 60s, you could be fired for getting pregnant, too. Mm. Um, you were just expected to leave your job, and if you didn't, you would be laid off. Um those those countries, countries where that is basically women are made to choose between having kids and work, many times they will opt for work. And those countries have extremely low birth rates. So, so Germany and Japan and Italy and Spain all fall into that category. Mm. Um, and uh so it takes more than just having a robust welfare state, which those countries also have. It takes, um, you know, actual some actual equality on the job, and and men doing their share. I think is also a big a big thing because if you feel if you feel on that you're unfairly burdened, th- work that would be a joy, you know, taking care of your kids, um, then becomes uh, starts to feel really. Uh, really unfair and burdensome and and you rightly become resentful mm. um, and one of the things that we noticed in in our consciousness raising this was sort of in a second wave of consciousness raising we did after the book came out is we started to talk about our how we watched our mothers struggle and and the sort of the family situations and the parental struggles that we observed and how that affected our decisions around having children. And that was, that was very revealing. A lot of people said that they saw their mothers struggling or both of the parents struggling. Um, and, and it just looked like no fun at all. It just looked exhausting and, and difficult. And a lot of the exhausting and difficult work was, you know, intended to make, the children's lives better, but then, then we as the children felt like, well, if we, you know, if we then plunge into that, it's sort of this endless chain of making your children's lives better, but it never actually happens because, because the economy is not, is not really allowing it. We don't, we don't have the kind of supports we need to have, to have happy lives and, and raise our children and have, uh, have work that, Mm. Um, you know, that's either fulfilling or at least uh, rewarding financially. So, um, so that uh, I think also plays into it. What is the, what is the structure of, of the society and you watch your, your parents and then you make your decision about whether you're going to have kids. Some people said, well, my, my family life was so messed up. I want to, I want to have kids so I can make a, you know, a, a better family. Right. So so that's 
that's also a and and others had happy childhoods and wanted to reproduce that but um but many felt that their their parents had 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 too much of a struggle and nobody should have to struggle like that yeah again i can relate to that and that's a that's something that's come up in my sort of research among the conversations consciousness raising conversations i've been having among my friends and colleagues also and and many people yeah experiencing that same thing myself included just growing up in a single parent household where it was just constant anxiety and constant stress and of course, all of it done for the benefit of my brother and I being able to have what we needed. But what we really needed was a mother who was able to be fully present and feel emotionally supported and feel emotionally secure so that she could really be with us and be present with us and not constantly have her mind on you know, her bank balance, which was essentially the case in my family. And so I think that, yes, even from a very young age growing up, I had the perception that this is this is this balancing act is this is a lot, <laughs> you know, and of course I inherited that mentality and experienced that balancing act in my life anyway. But I, my husband and I will often say to ourselves in moments of kind of financial anxiety and stress, well, at least we don't have kids because yeah, it's, it's very, very true. So your book came out in 2019 and then the pandemic hit and the papers were full of reports about the COVID childcare crisis. How did it feel to watch that unfolding? Because essentially that was just sort of, well, here's everything that was, that's been presented in your book. And here's the entire history of how we arrived at this point. Also, was it, um, I don't know, vindicating is the right word, but maybe I can imagine you may be shaking your fist at some of the reports that were coming out. <laughs> just like, I mean, come on, couldn't we see this coming, you know? <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, it really was an extension of a crisis that we were already in the middle right. of, right? Of of not having adequate childcare, not having enough money to get the childcare, um, not having jobs that had any flexibility. All of the um, long hours that people are working, trying to juggle, and Low one wages. of the things that, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that it really illustrated is the amount that. Uh, families are relying on grandparents to do the care because when that became impossible with COVID because you were afraid of transmitting the disease to older people, um, it really, it, a lot collapsed. And um, so especially, we noticed that a lot in the U.S. that, 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 um, that uh, you know, this system is, is based on our unpaid work and often it's the unpaid work of grandparents who also, you know, would like, to, to have some some leisure time and and some time to themselves and um and we, you know we're because we're desperate we're putting unnecessary burdens on them as well so um so yeah i mean this the you know the crisis starts with the drop in wages in the 70s and 80s where um you know Whereas it was believed, and at least it was the goal for a union job after World War II to support an entire family on one 40-hour week, um, you know, by the 70s, uh, both, both spouses had to go out to work. Um, there, was no, there was no way you could uh, raise a family on one person's wage. Um, so that meant that you were now giving 80 or more hours a week to the employer where you had been giving 40 per family per couple. And so, so we have already had a deficit of 40, 40 hours. Um, and then we were trying to raise kids in the, in the extra <laughs> time after work. Right. Um, and so the, 
the COVID just just accelerated that crisis. Um, but the but the general crisis already existed, where you know if we if we uh, calculate how many hours have been stolen from us, you know if we think that one one forty hour week should should support two parents and children, um, then you know or two twenty hour weeks should support two parents and children. Then then. And we and we compare that to our actual lives, you know, eighty and sixty hour weeks, um, and then trying to raise kids in in the meantime. We can see that it's just not feasible. Mm. It just doesn't work. I mean, two people is not enough to 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 raise a, a family. Um, and so we were pulling in a lot of other people who then could not be pulled in, and that just completely collapsed the system. Right. So what what are you seeing sort of coming moving through this? What sort of conversations are being being had? Um are there are there real conversations happening around changes in policy and what do what do you think will be the outcome from as we move out of covid? Well, one thing that's interesting is that a lot of people are are uh not going back to work mm. and causing somewhat of a labor shortage because they are still at home taking care of their kids and they know that they can't do that while working a job, whether, whether it's a job where you, where you work from home or you work outside the home, there's just not enough childcare. So, um, so that's, that's one thing that people are, are because there is um, still a, a pandemic unemployment stipend, mm-hmm. people are making those sacrifices and, and, and uh, you know, taking the taking what would be a wage cut to to uh, to stay home and and do uh, child rearing work. Um, the other thing that we've noticed is that uh, after fifty years of feminists demanding it, we're actually now seeing some money go towards uh, parents in the form of child allowances. Um, so that's a first in the U.S. We we have. Um, have experienced, you know, these, these tax breaks, but those, the tax breaks don't go to, don't go to the people who need it the most because they're not people who are filing taxes. They don't need it mm-hmm. on their taxes. And, um, and so the tax credit system uh, is, is, has been kind of a, a, a hitting all of the, all of the wrong people. And, and it, since it's means tested, it also doesn't have a lot of political support. So, um, replacing that with a lump sum that you get every month that allows you to help raise your kids, either pay for their childcare or or um, all their other needs, um, that is now on the table, and we have we have a, a, a brief version of it in in the emergency pandemic bills. Um, so people are starting to experience that. So I think that really. Um, it's not the best uh, thing. I mean, I think a universal childcare system would be uh, would be the thing that would really would really help the most, where it was really available at any time, and you and you really just had had no worries about whether or not there was going to be somebody to take care of your kids. Um, but uh, but it is helpful, and it is going to reduce the struggles for for families who have kids who are nearly all really struggling right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, uh, things have, have definitely 
it has shown a light. The thing that I also would have hoped we could have won at least on a temporary basis is is a fully covered national health care for everybody because that um, that and there were proposals, but we we weren't able to win them um, when COVID first hit. We we had proposals for all those people who got laid off. They should have been fully covered for any anything that happened. And, um, you know, if you had insurance, the insurance would pay. But if you didn't have insurance, you wouldn't have to worry about it. And um, those proposed but those proposals were not we're not allowed to go through because of the power of the uh, health insurance industry in the U.S., which is kind of has a stranglehold on our health system. So, um, so I think that's a, that's the next demand that we need to make. Obviously, um, there are big obstacles to that. You know, the insurance system is connected to the banks. You're really talking about sort of the heart of capitalist yeah, system right. when you talk about getting a national health system in the U.S. Uh, I mean. Other countries, when they got uh, the, their systems, such as Canada, didn't have already a big, uh, a, a big private insurance system that was quite as formidable as as the one that we're facing. We're facing here, so we are facing big obstacles. But I think it's time to demand that. Um, and that was, you know, healthcare. When we, when we talk to people about about what's stopping them from having kids. Healthcare is a huge area, not just on um, worrying about how you would have healthcare for your children, but also healthcare for yourself while you're bearing the kids. Um, even, even just coverage of fertility treatments, um, you know, going back to whether or not you can afford to, to uh, have uh, actually even conceive. So, <laughs> so um so all of those all of those things are are tremendous obstacles, and a national health care system would would be just an incredible increase in freedom. It would also, um, you know, stop this continuing sexist problem, which is that a lot of women get their health care through their spouse's jobs, um, or even their parents, and and that means that you know you're not only dependent on your spouse, you're dependent on your spouse and his employer, um, two levels of dependency, which, uh, which, you know, having a, having a national health system where everybody has all the care that they need would just completely release you from those, those dependent relationships and those worries, you know, because you worry your spouse is going to lose his job. You worry he's going to leave. Uh, if you feel the relationship is not going well, you don't feel free to leave. Um, and so there's a big feminist element to having a national health care system. I'm pausing us here to remind you that what you're listening to is one of hundreds of research interviews that I conducted for my new book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. The book is out in early 2023. And if you pre-order now, you can also get a free book club guide and an invite to an online launch event hosted by me. Just go to www.womenwithoutkids.com and enter your order number to get on the list. Now back to the episode. Absolutely. As, and as much as it pertains to freeing up spouses and partners, 
to be able to take on some more childcare, to not feel so tied to the very classic kind of nine to five corporate role, which prevents people really sharing fully in childcare responsibilities, like equally between two parents. So yeah, that's a really, really huge. I mean, one of my questions was like, how can women be properly compensated for the labor of child rearing? Because really the message of your book is like, our entire kind of like economic and social system relies on the unpaid labor, the unpaid child rearing labor of women. And so, yeah, I guess some you've, you've outlined some ways that that work, that labor can be supported, but are there are other ways that, that women um, can be more better compensated for the labor that they, that we do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, so the big feminist demand is that any programs should be for all parents. So men don't have structural obstacles to fully participating in child rearing, right? Mm. Um, so both parents should be able to be equally involved. And then, you know, if if they still aren't doing their share, then then that's the role for the feminist movement to 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 tell them to get with it, but to read to uh, some re-education. Mm. Right. But when there are obstacles like, you know, even in some higher paid jobs where they they say, oh, you know, in medicine or law where they say, oh, we have paid paternity leave, blah, blah, blah. Uh, God help you if you actually take that leave because uh, employers frown. They may frown on women taking uh, paid parental leave, but men taking paid parental leave, they really frown on it. And you get you get all kinds of retaliation. So so we need to pr- we need to stop all of those those obstacles. But then um, one of the ways that we could be properly compensated is is simply in in not having to work as many hours for mm. uh, and and be paid the same amount. So so when I said, you know, we lost 40 hours a week, um, you know, the feminist way to arrange that would be a 20 hour work week for everybody. So uh, at the same pay that we're making now um, and then you would have a tremendous amount more free time. Um, that's a, an excellent way to compensate it. Um, and then uh, uh, paid vacation and, and paid sick leave are other ways to compensate it. Um, right now, sick leave is incredibly difficult to take. Um, and there's no guarantee of sick leave, uh, except in a, in a few places, uh, a few states have have small amounts of guaranteed sick leave for, at your job. Um, we need a you know we need a national sick leave policy that every employer has to follow, um, and uh, and then vacation is a joke in the United States. I mean, you're lucky if you get ten days, um, and Europeans laugh at us when they're on their month and a half vacation visiting here, um, but we we really need that, and then. You know, we don't have any guarantee of of um, uh, paid maternity leave or paid parental leave, uh, except in a very short amounts in a few places. And and the even the unpaid leave doesn't cover half the workforce. So um, so that's a way to compensate you. I mean, by by paying you for a year to stay home with your kid. You know, and and that should be for both parents, and that would be a great great way to compensate. And then, of course, healthcare. Right now, healthcare and childcare, we're paying out of pocket for our healthcare and childcare 
out of our wages, right? So that's an insane way of doing it. Mm-hmm. If those if those things were were if childcare were like first grade, right? Um, it would be free to everybody, and you would and you would just be able to drop your kid off there when you need it. And and um, also a childcare system that is national and has uh, you know good pay and a union for the workers would drastically improve the childcare situation because right now it's so difficult um, to be a childcare teacher. It's so badly paid that if you have any opportunity to get another job, you do. And that leads to enormous turnover in, in child carers. And that that's, uh, you know, the kids don't know who's, who's going to be taking care of them next week. Right. right. Um, so, so it, it just, it makes care much worse. And those childcare teachers would like to stay childcare teachers if they could afford it. And so we need to put some money into that so that, so that they can afford to do that. Um, so though I think those are some of the ways that we could compensate it quite apart from you know any demands for a guaranteed annual income or wages for housework or any of the other fe- more uh grander feminist demands the ones that I've just listed are are readily available in most of Europe Absolutely and seem like you know again with the pandemic having really shaken up the way that people actually kind of balance their work daily working lives um it seems like there should be opportunities to have these conversations i mean what you're talking about you know shorter working weeks like a a work day that's maybe like 9 till 1 and you get paid the same just it and again like you know all of these all of these policies benefit the kids most of all you know ultimately like they're they're benefiting the parents of course but in order for the kids to have a more secure and more stable um background to grow up in you know and to have parents who are more present and more available for them um it just seems like the the the, the humans who really really suffer the most from the lack of these policies being placed is the kids the future generations yeah, um, and then and then when we grow up, we 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 think twice about having kids. Because well, exactly, so exactly. And so all of the puzzle pieces for this, you know, this baby bust start falling into place. You know, it's just it's very clear that there's a real chain reaction here happening. I've heard, um, you know, people talking about the concept of a caring economy. I interviewed Rian Eisler actually for the for the for the book, and um, she was talking about this this idea of a caring economy actually going bigger than even thinking about you mentioned you know how poorly childcare workers are paid but that extends across the whole care like caregiving economy you know um when it comes to elder care hospital workers etc cetera, etc cetera. these are all low paid jobs when actually these people are doing some of the most important jobs when it pertains to human beings actual health well-being and livelihood um so what how do you think about the caring the concept of a caring economy and how can we, yeah, on a political kind of, you know, action level, but also on a kind of personal human level, start to pivot towards really enacting a more caring economy? Well, I mean, that would be an economy that obviously puts people's um, well-being ahead of the profits of corporations and the wealth of a tiny elite right so mm-hmm. um so that means taking things out of the capitalist marketplace um and you know we don't expect like libraries or uh the fire station down the street to turn a profit 
But uh, in the U.S., we do demand that our healthcare, transportation, childcare, housing, big portions of hi- higher education um, are become profit generators for a small owning class, and and you see that, for example, in nursing homes and uh, and the result is just complete humanitarian disaster. Um, so if we were publicly providing those services and and they weren't uh, you know being squeezed for every drop of profit, that would that would start to to change the thing. But that's really, as you say, not enough. We need to also have a sense of what our economy is for, right? is is our economy, um, you know the the surplus of the economy. Who is going to get get that um, when we mm-hmm. and we have enormous surpluses in in modern economies? We're able to make the things that are required to live in in a fraction of the time that that it used to take. So that means that we have lots of free time. We have lots of extraordinary um, capacity that we could turn towards making our lives better, or we could turn towards a billionaire having his own space program, right? So they, those, all those decisions can be made, um, should be made democratically. And, and, and the feminist demand is for the work that women do to be valued the same, the, the work that men do, right? So, um, so all of those healthcare and childcare and elder care jobs that, um, that are generally not regarded as, you know, and the, and the maintenance jobs, which also um, involves a lot of men of color in the U.S. in particular, the maintenance jobs, which are, which, you know, picking up the garbage, maintaining buildings, maintaining the hospitals, all of that is, are also generally low paid. But we know that um, if the childcare workers don't show up or the garbage disposal people don't show up the 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 whole thing is going to grind to a halt if if the lawyers don't show up eh, you know it'll go on for quite quite a long time without that um another thing that the pandemic i think has demonstrated fairly well so um so really i think that 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 feminist insight that um that this care work is just as valuable and just as important um as the jobs that are coded male, right? The, mm. um, it, it, the, the building jobs and the production jobs and the, and, and the warfare and leadership jobs. Um, all, you know, we need to see how, how valuable the, the care work jobs are. And, and one way to do that is for, is for care workers to have unions so they can demand their due. Um, mm. And that, you know, that's a, that's a big struggle, but in, in the healthcare sector um, and in, in the education sector, I think the unions have started to really be a lot more militant about this. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that there is um, an ideological shift as well in terms of what we value what we see valuable, not just in monetary terms, but I often, you know, I often like to kind of pick things up and then sort of turn them around and look at them the other way. If we glamorized care work the same way that we glamorize Instagram influences, you know, if we had, if we had sort of, you know, 
cool, glamorous nurses and childcare workers on Instagram telling us how much they love and how rewarding it is. I mean, this is the kind of messaging it would be nice to see in the broader culture, you know, so that people actually aspire to these kind of roles rather than aspiring to be the next Jeff Bezos. I hope that nobody at this point is aspiring to be the next Jeff Bezos, but I think you get what I'm, what I'm saying with that. It's like, let's actually, let's bring forward and center, you know, the actual human value of these jobs and these roles for people who are performing them as well. You know, even the maintenance work that you've described can be extremely satisfying, but we don't see it that way. It's not presented it that way to us, you know? So I think that there's a, a message, a PR job <laughs> around kind of like care work that needs to be, that needs to be done as well. As you said, the pandemic showed us that these are the essential workers. And I wish that was played up more, you know, um, and maybe that's, these are conversations that need to start happening in schools and colleges as well, where people, when people are actually thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up? Or maybe I'd love to be, maybe I'd love to be in a caregiving profession because it's going to give me so much, you know, on a human level. Well, if childcare workers were getting $200,000 a year, yes. it would suddenly seem quite glamorous. It's you true. Know? I mean, yes. you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and become like, a, you know, a coveted job. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you see that actually happening a little bit when um, transit workers or nurses get pretty good pay. Suddenly those become the, really the jobs that are, and through unionization, through a strong union and militant mm. union, mm. Um, suddenly those jobs are really looked up to. You know, they're, people, nurses are get some respect suddenly. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the the kind of the kind of shift. One one thing that I'm trying to do with the book is um, get us to not blame ourselves when we can't make it work. So we, you know, all over the country, there are women like us blaming ourselves. We, we think, oh, if I'd gone into a better paying profession or um, if I, you know, maybe quit my job to move back where my parents live, they might help with childcare. Or if I, um, if, I hadn't gone into, <laughs> if I hadn't gone into so much debt for school um or, you know, oh, my housing is too expensive if I could just find a perfect cheap apartment. So we, you know, we think that there are things that we individually can adjust. And there are a few things you can, you know, a little bit. But but basically, it's not something that we individually did wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, and so our hope is that we can understand it as a system that is requiring our unpaid work to function. It's not something you did wrong. This is how it's designed, and if you um, if you start to if you start to see that, then you can start to see. Oh well, it could be designed another way, and that other way would make these things possible. And why is it that we have an economy that doesn't make just basic reproduction of our families um, something that that, that uh, anybody could could do on a normal job, right? Um, you have to have some special, special job and special uh, uh, system to be able to to pull it off. So um, the other thing I think is that we have a lot of focus on individual achievement, and it's kind of interrelated to to this um, to this other thing. We, you know, I think, for example, we're justly grateful, right, that the scientists that developed the COVID vaccine, um, you know, we're giving them awards and, and, and being really thankful. Um, 
But somebody taught those scientists to read and held their hand when they were ill as children and harvested and prepared their food. And um, without all those pieces, that wouldn't person would not be able to um, invent a vaccine. You know, it's it's just. Um, but all we see is the individual the individual achievement. We don't see that all of that interrelatedness. So I think um, when we think of ourselves as raising kids, we need to see that we are making a contribution. And when we watch other people raise kids, we're making a contribution to the whole society. It's not, you know, it's not just like an exotic pet that you're raising for your own pleasure. This is how our society can can function and move forward. Um, and if we understood that, I think really deeply, we would be um, we would be grateful to parents rather than complaining about them with the screaming kids on the plane. We would be we would really feel um, we would really feel a kinship when they when a parent needs to leave early because the kid is sick from work, and instead you get resentment. Um, just the understanding that that is an important contribution that people are making, just like inventing a COVID vaccine or any of the other things that we, you know, that we are grateful to people for having done. We should be grateful to um, people who take on this very difficult job of parenting um, and, and compensate it, have, make it a priority for the society to put resources into it um, put resources into the people that are doing the, the hands-on childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if we, you know, if we just saw ourselves as more interrelated, I think that would help. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear while well, we have a bit more time about just a little bit of time. I mean, um, you know, you touched several times in the book about this quote unquote problem of the aging population. This seems to be, you know, the, the biggest moral panic seems to be around, well, we have, we have, we don't have enough kids to replace the population. And at the same time, people are living longer and longer and they just won't die and they need caring for much longer after they quit working. And what do you, what do you think are the most realistic ways of thinking about this aging population problem, which isn't really going anywhere as long as women are having less children, which seems to be an ongoing trend and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Um, what do you think are yeah realistic ways to, to look at it that don't have that sort of scaremongering um, tinge to them? Yeah, the um, a lot of the elite panic over the birth rate has been uh, funneled into the question of social security payments and how, will we have enough money in social security if if workers are not working? This is a complete ruse because the reason that social security um, payments are lower than they should be is because uh, right now we have a we have a social security system which only taxes. Um, workers up to uh, to around $200,000. It changes every year. Um, and that means that, first of all, the high paid workers are not paying as much into it. But as the inequality in our society has gotten much, much worse, so lots of workers working for minimal wage and lots of people getting, uh, getting much more than $200,000 a year, the... Um, the amount of money that's being taxed for social security, the amount of national wealth that we make every year that's being taxed for social security has been reduced. So if we, for example, if we increase the minimum wage, 
to $15 an hour or $20 an hour, that would immediately solve the problem of the shortfall of Social Security. So really, they're saying that it's a demographic problem, but what it is, is it's a distributional problem um, among of money. But it is a problem for uh, for financiers and whatnot. They would like to get rid of Social Security entirely, of course, because it's a big tax that they don't want to pay. What they want to do is they want to force all of those expenses back into the family. Um, and one way to do it is to say, oh, Social Security is broken. It's not going to work. Let's put it in private bank accounts. You'll, you know, you'll be, and then we'd be back to, you know, uh, being responsible for for supporting uh, members of our family that are that are past working age ourselves out of our wages, um, and this you know this is great for employers who don't have to pay social security tax, but it's terrible for us, and it's particularly terrible for women because it puts us back into that situation of we have to have kids to guarantee our old age security, because if we don't, there will be nobody to take care of us when we're old. So, and there's no, there's not going to be any guarantee of, of money. So this is the kind of society that, um, that we came out of when we got social security, where you really did work till you dropped, Hmm. or you had lots of kids that might have enough um, jobs themselves to be able to support you, but, but you were, you became dependent on your children um, also not a good good family dynamic to be in. And and often if you didn't have enough children or your children were died before you did or were um, in various ways didn't have any any resources, you were completely out of luck. You there you had no, you know, for, for working people, there was just no safety net. So um so they're basically using demographics as an excuse on social security, but it's not entirely an excuse. What it is, is they don't want to put money into oh, the workforce that has retired. And they've, they've gotten rid of our, uh, our um, private retirement system almost entirely. I mean, nearly every retirement pension system is, is bankrupt or near or near nearing bankruptcy for all the old corporations that, that used to employ millions of people. And now, Mm. and so, so the private system, they've already done that in and they don't want to, they didn't want to pay those expenses. And now they really don't want to pay the public expenses. And you could see it in their, in their um, efforts. I mean, they already raised the, the retirement age to 67. um, And all the proposals to strengthen social security, uh, you know, that come from, from the corporate corporate elite are are around raising the retirement age again making it uh means tested breaking up the solidarity that people have around retirement um making it uh restricting it to to certain populations all of the different ways that you take a program that's great and universal and make it into one that people don't really understand and can't access and and will and and won't fight for because they don't have a stake in it so so that's what we're seeing with the uh, with the argument around old age. We, you know, obviously, corporations need to take care of the workers that work their whole lives for them and and are and are now retiring. Um, the question: How to do that? Well, it's easy. You could just tax those corporations, which now have more money than they know what to do with. They spend it all buying back their own shares to raise their stock prices. 
Um, they just have so much cash, they're, they're swimming in it. You can tax that and uh, redistribute it to, uh, to people who've reached the end of their working lives and, and give them a dignified retirement. Mm, thank you for spelling that out so clearly. <laughs> it's, yes, a ruse indeed. And you touched on, I think this is for, for women who don't have kids, for whatever reason, they may not have children. Um, and there are so, so many reasons, but that's one of the biggest fears. And I've definitely, among among sort of friends who have, who are sort of like last minute, last, oh, actually, I'm really going to do this. I think this is one of the biggest fears. And it's, it's a, often a decision that's driven by fear. I better do this because actually there'll be no one to take care of me when I'm old. And like you say, there's no guarantee that that will be the dynamic that eventually, you know, you're, you're able to benefit from. Um, but it also seems like, probably not such a great reason to have a kid and dedicate your life, therefore, to being a mom and to, you know, the labor, the unpaid labor of child rearing, if it's just out of fear for what will happen when you're no longer able to support yourself. So I do think this is, I don't know, it, it seems to me like it is a very pressing issue and one perhaps that women without kids can somehow, some way get involved with, um, since we have a vested interest in really kind of like making sure that there are provisions, but much, much more robust provisions for elder care. Um, and I suppose, social yeah, Sec- sort of- social security was a big feminist advance. I don't think people recognize yeah. what a huge advance it was to have a portable uh, social insurance system that follows you. Now, there were sexist aspects to it originally that got reduced in the 70s through, um, for example, you had to be married for 20 years uh, to get uh, access to half of your husband's Social Security. Now that's only 10. Um, and then then there were other various things that were became spouse rather than just husband based. Mm. But um, but it does it does account for women's work in the home, because if you do work in the home, you get half of your husband's, even if you divorce him, you get half. He doesn't get any less, but you get half of his. Um, so that that is one way that it accounts for it. But the other big part is that it takes the burden off of women to reproduce in their bodies <laughs> the um, you know the people that will take care of them in their old age. Instead, it makes a, a society wide. It makes it into a society wide um, uh, responsibility mm. and spreads the risk of having kids and whether or not they're going to be able to live to old age and, and, uh, or have a gainful employment or whatever. Um, it spreads that risk across the entire society too. So everybody is taking care of everybody rather than it being a lottery that each individual family plays. And you are more likely to win if you have more kids, which puts women on this treadmill of, of reproduction that is just, um, that it's it's unfair and and unnecessary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, yeah, my last question, just to finish up, like, how can the birth strikers, the women who are not having kids, again, for whatever reason, many of which I think we've touched on here in this conversation, how can we be part of enacting some of these changes, and how can we um, get involved? I suppose in ensuring a better future for ourselves, but also for mothers and for the children and the future generations. Well, this is the big question, right? How do you change the political structure of the United States to, mm-hmm. to <laughs> yes, uh, uh, you know, 
and but there are some exciting things happening right now and i think i think um there's a lot for people to get involved in um you know i i i think that the democratic socialists of america have been doing a great job um raising all of these issues and and getting candidates in who who really um represent a, this big platform of things that we need um and then the unions, especially in in the um, teaching and healthcare sector, have been leading the way on demanding community wide supports for schools, communities. Uh, for example, the the uh, National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, um, and several nursing associations around the country, including the one in New York, um, are big exponents of a national healthcare system. They're extremely important in, in fighting for that because people really trust nurses and understand that nurses, nurses have their best interests at heart. Um, so, uh, so I think that, that through the unions and through organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America, I think we can actually win this broad platform, which is not entirely feminist, but it has enormous feminist benefits. So, uh, strengthening and supporting social security, getting um, uh, childcare, healthcare, paid leave, shorter work hours, um, and and you know f- fully funded higher education—all of these things that, for example, were on the Bernie Sanders platform, those are are um, enormous steps that would that would free up women and and make it more possible for parents to have kids when they want them. And make it possible, as we were talking about with Social Security, for people to not have kids if they don't want them, because that's mm-hmm. the other part part that's really important. Um, you know, you really can't have uh, women can't be free if they are required to to have kids when they don't want them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jenny. I really, really appreciate you taking the time today. I appreciate this book. Everybody listening, it's Birth Strike. Get your copy. Um, absorb read get involved this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation um so yeah thanks very much thanks a lot that was my conversation with jenny brown whose book a birth strike the hidden fight for women's work is a must read for anybody who's interested in understanding the full dynamics behind the topics we raised in this episode and don't forget you can also pre-order your copy of women without kids the revolutionary rise of an unsung sisterhood now to receive a free book club guide to accompany the book. I'll include links to both in the show notes. This podcast is edited and features original music by Allo Audio. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.